Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Before we begin, I am very aware that there are people listening to this program who have never, ever set foot in a record store. They came of age musically after the internet changed everything about how we hear about, acquire, and consume music. But remember this, for over a hundred years, the only way you could hear music on demand was to own it. You had to purchase a piece of plastic for X dollars, and for that price, you could listen to that music an infinite number of times for no additional charge. You made not just an emotional investment in that music, but a financial one as well. And damn it, you were going to make sure you listened to that piece of plastic until you wrung out every possible bit of enjoyment that you could from it. Otherwise, you'd have to come to terms with the fact that you, uh, well, that you wasted your money. There was another aspect to this emotional investment, too. In order to acquire this music, you had to leave your home, find your way to a record store, and search through all the shelves hoping to find something. If you were looking for something specific and it wasn't in stock, you had to special order it, which was a whole new level of emotional investment. And while you were at the record store, you interacted with records that you didn't know about. Just flipping through the stacks, looking at albums, was an education in itself. Maybe you'd go with a couple of friends, fan out across the store, and then compare finds. Maybe you'd meet a stranger and strike up a conversation. And if you were a regular, it's possible that the person behind the counter became a trusted source for recommendations. Or maybe you'd go see an artist play live or attend some kind of autograph session. Record stores are still with us, but there were fewer and fewer of them. Certainly far fewer than the glory days of music shopping, which extended from the 1960s through to the late 1990s. A lot of legendary stores and chains have disappeared forever. But while it lasted, it was pretty amazing. This is the story of the record store. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Little ska punk from San Diego's Bucko Nine and a record store. That's from a 1997 album entitled 28 Teeth. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is a program filled with stories about record stores, those cultural gathering sites that are still with us and are still very important, but they just don't occupy the same spot in people's lives as they used to, which I think is sad. Personally, and this is because I'm of a certain age, I must have spent thousands of hours in record stores. Sometimes I'd buy, but I was often just happy hanging around, browsing through the racks, listening to whatever music the clerks had playing on the stereo. If you're like me, you're bound to feel a little nostalgic when it comes to these stores. If you're of the generation for whom record stores mean nothing, I think you should listen anyway, because you'll get an idea of how acquiring music used to be in the time before smartphones, streaming, downloads, and the internet. 
We might as well start at the very beginning. When pre-recorded music was introduced in the late 1880s, these Edison cylinders and Berliner discs were sold at furniture stores, the same places that sold phonographs and gramophones, which made sense given that these first units were looked upon as fine furniture. If you bought one, you needed something to play on them, right? And there were lots and lots of furniture stores. If you add them all up, in 1906, there were 25,000 record dealers just in the United States, most of them furniture stores. This continent-wide collection of retailers was established by the big record companies of the day, which were Victor and Edison. Now, let me play you this. This is a demonstration recording that was used to push these things back in the day. Salespeople would play this in the store as a way of introducing customers to this new idea of recorded audio. This is from 1906. I am the Edison phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world to delight those who would have melody or be amused. I can sing you tender songs of love. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. I can transport you to the realms of music. I can cause you to join in the rhythmic dance. I can lull the babe to sweet repose or waken in the aged heart soft memories of youthful days. No matter what may be your mood, I am always ready to entertain you. Here's another one from 1910 that extols the then-new thing of a disc with recordings on, get this, both sides. The purpose of this record is to demonstrate the Columbia Double Disc Record. It is not offered for sale. Columbia Double Disc Record, music on both sides, a different selection on each side. Two records at a few cents above the price of one. They may be played on any disc machine, the Columbia Graphophone or the Victor Talking Machine. And they give you double value for your money, plain as daylight. But it wasn't just furniture stores selling records. Department stores had them. Sears, Kresge's, Kmart, Woolworths. There were plenty of independent stores, too. And in my small town, you could buy records at Irene Pearson's Furniture Store. There was also the Robinson Store, even the Drug Store. Each had small displays of records with four or six bins of albums and maybe, you know, 30 records in each. It wasn't much. There were no more than two copies of each title, and they had to stock a wide range of genres, rock, pop, country, and plenty of those instrumental albums that were supposed to be good for mood music for older people. The first album I ever bought with my own money was from the bin at Robinson's in my small town. $4.99 plus tax, using money I had earned from my paper route. It was Elton John's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. Still got that record, too. And I remember my mom being absolutely furious at me because I wasted my money on something as trivial as an album. Like It was over $5. Do you realize what $5 could buy other than a record? There were actual record stores, too. The first known store to sell just records was Spiller's Records in Cardiff, Wales. Henry Spiller opened for business for the first time in 1894, selling phonographs, Edison cylinders, and early rotating discs. However, this is disputed. It is also said that there was a place called D'Amato Records in the town of Valletta on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. It could have been first. The claim is that it opened for business sometime in 1885. That would have been just seven years after Thomas Edison demonstrated his talking machine and a full nine years before Spiller's opened. However, Spiller's Records is still in business. It's moved several times, but it is still open in Cardiff. 
They carry all kinds of material, although they're not happy with Morrissey. In 2019, they banned all of his records because they believe Mazur is flirting too much with far-right politics and far-right groups. One of the very first radio stations in the world, if not the first, was an experimental outlet called XWA in Montreal. When engineers got bored with speaking, they grabbed some phonograph records from the Leighton Brothers record store down the street. The records were given for free in exchange for announcements about where they came from. Other early radio stations like KDKA in Pittsburgh did the same thing. They'd get their records from local stores. After all, this was in the days before label reps started pitching records. New record stores started popping up through the 1920s. There was a big setback with the Great Depression, which saw sales drop by an astounding 95% between 1930 and 1932. The recovery was slow, but it happened. The oldest existing record store in the U.S. is either Reinhardt's Music and Video, a piano store that started selling records in 1901, or it could be George's Sound Shop, which opened for business in 1932. So, big discrepancy there. As for Canada, I don't know for sure, but Wilson and Lee in Oshawa had a history that began in 1922, but unfortunately, they closed up for good in the fall of 2019. Now, fast forward to the late 1940s, when a radio announcer named Alan Freed was working at a station in Akron, Ohio called WAKR. He struck up a friendship with a guy named Leo Mintz, who ran Rendezvous Records, one of the biggest record stores in Cleveland. Leo noticed that a lot of white kids were buying the R&B records that he brought in from the U.S. South. Hey, you should play these records on your radio show, said Leo. And when Freed moved east to Cleveland for a job on WJW, Mintz bought airtime on the station. Freed hosted, playing R&B records supplied by Rendezvous Records. And the first broadcast was on July 11, 1951. The arrangement worked out better than anyone could have ever thought. Freed became a huge star, referring to himself as the Moondog because his show ran after midnight. Then he started promoting shows featuring the acts behind these records. He called them Moondog Balls. And looking back, these were the first ever rock concerts. Freed also famously eventually started calling the music he played on his radio show Rock and Roll. This was after a New York street musician who had dibs on the name Moondog threatened legal action. So where did this term rock and roll come from? Well, one theory is that he got it from one of those records he got from Rendezvous Records in Cleveland. It was a 1951 recording called 60 Minute Man by Billy Ward and the Dominoes. It contains the lyric, I rock em, roll em all night long. And he was talking about sex. Rocking and rolling was African-American slang for getting it on. Given his knowledge of R&B records, there was no way that Free did not know that. And he also must have known that the white kids listening to his show would have understood the code. So, if we dig all the way back into the history of musical nomenclature, we have to thank Leo Mintz of Rendezvous Records in Cleveland for giving Alan Freed this record and planting the seed for the modern use of the term rock and roll. More stories about record stores coming up. Don't go anywhere. This is a brief history of the record store, something that has been culturally important for decades and decades, 
but an area of retail that is under tremendous stress as we move further and further into the digital era. Now think about what a record store does. It acquires space, amasses inventory, hires people, and does whatever it has to do to sell recorded music on behalf of record labels. This carries a lot of risk because outside of superstar releases, you never know what's going to sell. Most of the time, record stores and record labels got along well. But there were times, like in the early 1980s, when they disagreed. Stores had spent a lot of money investing in shelving, first for 45s and albums. Then they needed new shelving for 8-tracks and cassettes. And now the industry wanted them to start carrying a new format called the compact disc. This did not sit well with stores, who didn't want to spend even more money on shelving and inventory for yet another format. But when it was pointed out that you could stack two CDs side-by-side in the same space as a 12-inch album, they got the point. And besides, the, the whole industry was in a deep recession in the early 80s. They needed something to right the ship. And it turns out that the CD was just the thing everybody needed. And the shelving dispute was forgotten. But I digress. When gramophone sales took off in the early years before, during, and after World War I, the demand for records took off. In the UK, one of the first stores was HMV. It was owned by the Gramophone Company, a record label that released music on the HMV label, HMV standing for His Master's Voice. And the first store opened on Oxford Street in London in 1921. Ten years later, there was a merger between the Gramophone Company and another recorded music manufacturer, resulting in Electrical and Musical Industries, henceforth known as EMI. And yeah, that's the same as the record label that we came to know. HMV grew into a worldwide thing with franchises everywhere. At its peak in the 1990s, HMV owned 320 stores. They owned the largest record store in the world at 383 Oxford Street in London. It was big enough to stage decent-sized in-store performances on a regular basis. There were stores in Australia, Ireland, Singapore, Hong Kong, India, and Italy. And there were a few stores in the U.S., mostly in Manhattan, but they didn't fare very well. The American stores closed by the end of 2004. Meanwhile, the Canadian stores were pretty cool when it came to servicing customers. First, they had a no-hassle returns policy. And secondly, they had a loyalty program. Buy 10 CDs, get the 11th free, which was really good when you consider that CDs at the time were running $17, $18, $19, $20 each. But by 2010, the entire HMV group was running into financial problems. Rising vinyl sales couldn't make up for the cratering of CD sales. Rents were going up. Traffic was going down. Even a switch to selling more music merch didn't help. And after a particularly bad Christmas season brought on by ugly weather, HMV started closing stores in January of 2011. Exactly two years later, HMV UK went bankrupt. An attempt was made to revive the brand by a company called Hilco, but it didn't work. More stores were closed, and there was another bankruptcy. HMV Canada, which operated as a subsidiary of the parent company, also ran into problems. Bankruptcy beckoned, and all the stores were closed by April 30th, 2017. However, Canada's Sunrise Records, a chain formerly with just a handful of locations, moved in and snapped up the leases for 70 HMV locations across Canada. And then Sunrise bought out Hilco's interest in HMV UK and Ireland. And now Sunrise, based in Ancaster, Ontario, is the world's largest operator of bricks and mortar record stores. Here's something appropriate. These are Radio Stars from 1977, the song about record shopping. It's called Buy Chiswick Records. Nobody 
since we're already on the subject, here's the history of Sunrise Records. The company started in 1977 with a single location on Young Street in Toronto. Over the next decade or so, Sunrise became one of Canada's five major record chains. Yeah, we had five. HMV, Sam the Record Man, Music World, and A&M Records, plus Sunrise. None of which exist anymore, of course. At one point, there were 85 Sunrise locations across the country. But like all the other chains, it ran into hard times. And by the fall of 2014, it was down to just a couple of locations. But then the company was purchased by Doug Putnam, who runs a toy company. He had a new concept in record retailing and was willing to take the risk. When HMV went under, he bought out all those leases, turning them into Sunrise Record Stores. And when HMV UK went bankrupt, he bought them out too, keeping the HMV name alive. Some stores were closed, but some reopened. And there's a new HMV flagship store in Birmingham called HMV Vault, which opened in 2019. And Sunrise's expansion wasn't over. In 2020, they bought Phi Entertainment, which owns 206 record stores under various brand names across the United States. So let's see, this is just a rough calculation. 85 Canadian locations. We got the U.S. stores, at least 120 under the HMV banner. So that's over 400 record stores owned by Sunrise Records. So yeah, that makes them the biggest in the world. Time for a song about a meetup at a record store that apparently no longer exists. And then we'll get into that whole topic in just a second. Meet me at the record store Even though it ain't there anymore So many record stores have gone under in the 21st century. Sam Goody was a huge American chain followed by Sam Goodowitz in New York in 1948. He started with a single store in Manhattan before starting a chain based out of Minneapolis in 1951. His thing at first was he only sold brand new 33 to 3rd LP records. He had a gimmick. If you bought $25 worth of records, and remember that LPs were selling at $4.85 at the time, the equivalent of at least $50 today, you got a free record player. At the company's peak, it had over 1,300 stores under both the Sam Goody name as well as Musicland. And today, there are just two locations, and they are now owned by, you guessed it, Canada's Sunrise Records. There were the Virgin Megastores. The first Virgin store opened in January 1971 by Richard Branson, who had later found Virgin Records a year later. The company grew fast, and by 1979, the first Megastore was opened on Oxford Street near Tottenham Court Road, just a few blocks away from HMV's flagship. Virgin stores sprouted up everywhere. 125 in the UK, 35 in France, 23 in the US, including the iconic location in Times Square. There were other huge stores in LA and San Francisco. The chain also spread to Australia, Japan, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands. There were 32 across just the Middle East. There were five in Morocco. There was even a virgin store on Reunion Island, a French spot in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Africa. There was just one megastore in Canada and it was in Vancouver. But for years, there were plans to put one at the corner of Young and Dundas in Toronto, but that fell through. But there were also Virgin locations at airports under the name Virgin Books and Music. They existed from Winnipeg to Shanghai. Virgin music stores are just a shadow of themselves. All the megastores are gone, but you still might be able to find a few smaller stores across the Middle East. The biggest of all the American chains was Tower Records. It was established in Sacramento, California in 1960 by Russell Solomon. Russ named the place after his father's drugstore, which was in the same building as the Tower Theater on Broadway in downtown Sacramento. 
Seven years later, there was a tower in San Francisco. And then the expansion started. There were 200 locations at their peak, many of which were standalone stores rather than spots in a mall. The most famous location of the mall was on the Sunset Strip, the building at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Horn Avenue. Everyone, including lots and lots and lots of big stars, shopped there. Elton John, Michael Jackson, and Bruce Springsteen were regulars. So was I, as a matter of fact. A trip to L.A. was not complete without a long stop at Towers on Sunset. Damn, they had a great selection of imports. And there was also a famous billboard on the roof that promoted some new release or other. And the chain was international. Japan was a very important market for Tower. There were also stores in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, the Philippines, South Korea, and Taiwan. Plus, you could find Tower stores in Ireland, Israel, and the UK. 18 countries in total. There were two stores in Canada. The first opened at the south end of the Eaton Center at Young and Queen in December 1995. Point of pride here. When the doors opened that first day, I was the first one inside. Yeah, I know, big deal. That place lasted until 2001. There was a second location north of downtown, but it also shut down in 2001. The best years saw Tower Records sell a billion dollars worth of CDs, all on its own. But in the early 21st century, the company fell in hard times. Everything but the Tokyo store was gone by 2006. Russ Solomon died at the age of 92 in 2018. But in 2020, the band was revived as an online retailer. Dave Grohl was once a Tower Records employee. He got a job at a Washington, D.C. location back in the 80s, saying that it was the only place that he could work with his long hair and fashion sense. This is a clip from a 2015 documentary on the rise and fall of Tower Records called All Things Must Pass, which was directed by Colin Hanks, son of Tom. I got a job at Tower Records because that's the only place that I could get a job with my haircut. That is the truth. <laughs> I love Tower Records and I love music and I only wanted to work at Tower Records and be surrounded by these cool people and all this cool music. I just I just imagine that everybody that worked at Tower was like an aficionado. In Canada, the equivalent to Tower Records had to be Sam the Record Man, which started operations in 1937. At one time, it was the largest chain in the country with 140 stores. Sam was Sam Snyderman, who started selling records out of his family's College Street radio shop. That store opened in 1920. The first flagship store opened at 259 Young Street in 1959, but then later moved to a cavernous place up the street at 347 Young in 1961, marked by a big neon storefront with iconic spinning neon records. If you visited or moved to Toronto, one of the first things you had to do was go downtown and look for those neon records. There were eventually three floors to the flagship, and it expanded into the bank next door when it moved, and then a tavern that vacated on the other side. And Sam sold everything from that store. LPs, 45s, 8-tracks, open-reel tapes, there was even a Chinese restaurant in the store for a while. And it seemed that every mall across the country had a Sam's location. When my sister went for music lessons every week, my mom would drop me off at the nearest mall so I could wander through the Sam's store for an hour. I can't tell you how much I learned just browsing and listening to whatever the staff was playing. I vividly recall being interested in punk. This would be the late 1970s. And I was fascinated by this band that I had read about called Devo. 
that had done a punk version of I Can't Get No Satisfaction, or so I thought. I'd never really heard Devo. I just read about them because, you know, that's the way it was back then. So I found the 45 at Sam's. I think I paid $1.49 for it, and I couldn't wait to get it home and play it. But instead of snarling punk guitars, I heard this, and uh, boy, I was confused. I still have that 45, too. Sam the Record Man ran into big troubles in the early 2000s. All the locations closed, save for one. Last I heard, there was one remaining Sam's in Belleville, Ontario. The building on Young Street was torn down, and the student building for Ryerson University sits on that spot. But those spinning records were saved because they were so historically important to the culture of Toronto. They've been restored and now look down from a building from nearby Dundas Square. Here are some other record chains that are no longer with us. A&A Records was founded at the end of World War II by Alice and Aaron Kenner. They're the A&A in the name, along with Alice's husband, Mac. They were the biggest chain in Canada for a bit. At their peak, there were 260 A&A record shops. And for years, their flagship was right next door to Sam's on Young Street. But rapid expansion hurt, and in 1993, the company went bankrupt. There was The Warehouse, an American chain. One of their stores in Los Angeles was the scene of the infamous Depeche Mode riot during an autograph session for the Violator album on March 20th, 1990. Then as LAPD has just called out a tactical alert, which means plenty of squad cars are on the way. The band is called Depeche Mode, the latest postmodern group to retake the United States by storm. Tonight, thousands of fans jam the streets surrounding the warehouse music store across from the Beverly Center trying to get autographs. The private security force could not handle them all and police had to be called. 20 units arrived initially, but they haven't been enough. One person fainted after fans began to crowd in. She was taken to a local hospital, and police have arrested another person. These fans were going to almost any length to get a peek at their favorite rock stars, even climbing trees. But neighbors aren't thrilled with the group, the noise, or the traffic jams, and neither are the police. Oh, and then it got weirder. One woman has been taken to a local hospital after being crushed by fans, and two more ambulances have just been dispatched to the scene. Police have had to make several arrests, and the band was forced to leave early. Now, 30 of the fans climbed up and damaged our own Fox News microwave van. So uh, we've been hit by this, too. Back with more Record Store Stories in just a sec. Before we wrap up the history of record stores, we need to talk about Record Store Day. This event has helped save not just independent retailers, but has also resulted in the resurrection of vinyl records. Back in 2007, some indie record store owners in Baltimore had a meeting. They were all hurting bad. How could they possibly revitalize their businesses? Someone brought up Free Comic Book Day, an event held by comic book stores that have been very successful in bringing in new customers. Could we do this? Come up with special product and appearances that would bring people back into record stores and show them how much fun our stores are? This led to the first Record Store Day in 2007. It has since spread worldwide. Hundreds, if not thousands, of independent record stores participate every year. And record labels, recognizing a marketing opportunity when they saw one, jumped on board with special limited edition releases, mostly on vinyl. And it worked. Not only were dozens and dozens and dozens of small record shops saved, 
But the sale of vinyl kept going up and up and up and up. Artists from Metallica to Ozzy Osbourne to Iggy Pop to Pearl Jam have served as official Record Store Day ambassadors. Normally, Record Store Day is held on the third Saturday in April, with a secondary event scheduled for Black Friday in November. In 2020, that had to change because of COVID, and there were three Record Store Days, plus the Black Friday sale. Things have worked out better than anyone thought possible, and some really cool records have been made available. I have a special copy of U2's debut album, Boy, that was part of the Black Friday part of Record Store Day in 2020. It's on white vinyl and was limited to just 10,000 copies. Fun fact about Record Store Day. One of the final public sightings of Prince happened on Record Store Day 2016 when he was spotted at a place called the Electric Fetus. Five days later, he was dead. Although record stores aren't what they used to be, they're still fantastic places to hang out, browse, and shop. You can learn so much by what you find in the racks, by observing other people, and by chatting up the people who work there. The people who work in these stores are doing it out of love because no one is getting rich selling music anymore. If you can, please patronize them. And if you're of a generation that has never set foot in a record store, do it. What have you got to lose? I think you'll love what you'll find. And if you travel, seek out local record stores. Amoeba in Los Angeles is a good one. I never go to London without visiting Rough Trade in Notting Hill or the East End store in Brick Lane. Even if you buy nothing, the vibe of a record store is very, very cool. I've been to record stores in Russia, in the Middle East, and Far East. They're brilliant. Just love hanging around those places. If you want to explore other ongoing history shows, there are hundreds of podcasts available. Just go to your favorite podcast platform and download away. They're all free, of course. We can also connect through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I'm always adding posts to my website, which is a journal of musicalthings.com. Get the free newsletter too, so you don't miss anything. Oh, an email? I love that. Just drop me a line through Alan at alancross.ca. Now, uh, if you'll excuse me, I have some records to file. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. Before we leave today's ongoing history of new music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music, it's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, 
uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. Corn. <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into, some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And, and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. 
And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.